You're listening to Riverview Church Conversations, a podcast for the spiritually curious. Welcome everyone back to the Riverview Conversations podcast. Hello. Hey, Hola. Ryan. Como estas, eh? Huh? Si, senor. Oh. I, I think I said, hello, how are you? And I said, yes, sir. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not. I'm not very skilled with languages. I like no. to talk in funny, uh, in funny accents. But no, language is not my strength. Oh, how's it going, Reese? Good, good. It's a good Sunday. Yeah, we are recording uh, in an unusual time, unusual place. But hey, it's always a good time and good place to have a chat with you. How Reece. novel a Sunday podcast record. That's right. Mm. Uh, as per normal, Reese, uh, a little bit of a, a fun question to get us going. Is it about languages? Got nothing to do with languages, so we're, we're, we're spraying all over the place at the yes. moment. This is a really random question, but I, I do love a good icebreaker question. Oh, well, here we go. Reese. if you were to have a boat, like your own ship, what would it be called? Oh. Surely you've thought about this, you know, <laughs> when you own your own yacht one day. Oh, it would, like, I would probably call it something, I'm picturing a super yacht myself as like a Russian oligarch on a super yacht. <laughs> so you're not the, you Watching anymore. the <laughs> America's Cup and it would be called, so, like it would be something in like, um, in like Times New Roman lettering. Oh. And it would be called something very minimal, a one, one, uh, one word name. But I do have a great affinity for the punny boat names. Yeah, yeah, You know, yeah, like ocean-themed yeah. ones or ones that th- always the skipper of the boat, their little uh, tinny boat uh, is something uh, throwing their wife under the bus. Well, you, quite, like you quite like a, a fun branding oh, I slogan. Do. You, I you love... have a, a little side hustle. Tell us about your little side oh, hustle. Oh, Great Brands of Perth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Go on. This is, this is your time. Great Brands it. of Perth. Oh, it's just, you know, it's just for people who love the great – uh, local branding, self-branding of things like retail stores, <laughs> fish and chip shops. Uh, there's one up the road, a good fish and, chip, fish and chip shop called Barry Mundy's. Yes, I've been there. Any good? Uh, I will not disclose on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you have to be careful though because quite often they're, they're, they are um, ethnically – they're ethnic puns. Yes, yeah. So, yeah. and sometimes they push push the boundaries a little bit. So yeah, yeah, you, you have to be careful. But, but I do have an affinity for self branding of of the small business owner. Mm. Mm. And you, sir, uh, oh, your, look, the name well, of your boat? I honestly, I actually don't know. When I asked the question, I was a bit nervous trying to think about. I'd probably go something Star Wars related, just because I'm a bit of a oh, like a um, like the, the Calrissian, ex- like that. executor, or the Parsec. Oh yeah. I don't know. Yeah, something something like that. Something really nerdy. Yeah, but, uh, something that a few people would get, but not everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah those on oh, the good. in. Yeah, I'm not much of a boating guy, to be honest. No, for me, owning a boat is probably similar to owning a pool. Um, <laughs> lots of work <laughs> and lots of, lots of sun. Yeah. yeah, yeah. For me, that is not worth it. Yes, yeah, so you probably sell the boat and purchase yep. something that you could be inside, like an air conditioning room. There you go. Very <laughs> like good. Like a bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Now, Reese, we're having some conversation. I mean, we're, we're, you know, we've kind of weaved it in there. A bit of branding talk. Oh. We're talking about evangelism today. Reframing. Wow. Evangelism. Perhaps our, we- perhaps our question should be uh, our our, um, our curly question should be when was the last time you led someone to the Lord? Yeah. Good question, Reese. When, no. <laughs> uh, t- let's, well, it depends let's- what you define as. Yes, like, that's true. That's was true. I was I the, the last person to lead them? Was I like the last one at the end of the chain? Or are we talking holistically? Well, that's why we're reframing. I couldn't answer. Either, I, I couldn't answer either of them. But uh, yeah, it seems to me that that's perhaps not the point of evangelism. Yes. Now, now. Talk to me about why we're doing this podcast. This has been, again, another one, like a long oh, time coming. Oh, goodness me. Evangelism is a pretty peculiar thing when you think about it. Mm. Um, Brand ambassador. Oh, pretty much. But, you know, it's pretty, if you've been around church circles a long time, you've, you potentially have seen a shift from the large event rally, come to Jesus, Billy Graham type thing, to you would say that those things kind of don't happen as frequently in, in modern mm. church life. Mm. Um, and we've and we've also seen kind of the pitfalls of that kind of evangelism as well. Yeah. Uh, some would say I would think that the modern church is pretty light on evangelism and mm. potentially a little little too seeker friendly. Mm. But that's all kind of really focusing on the method. Yeah. So, what is actually evangelism then? Is it about winning the lost at any cost? Is it about growing mature Christians? Is it just about making sure people escape hell? 
mm. all that stuff thrown in the mix has been kind of stuff that we've been talking about for yeah. for months now. And so yeah, and I think we go into this conversation both with the the um, shared belief that evangelism is is a key part of the faith mm. journey and the faith life. But I think for us, as as we do on this podcast, we're wanting to have kind of go a little bit deeper and have conversations that matter and ask, okay, well, what what is it that we're talking about when we talk mm. about evangelism? Spreading and, the gospel. Yeah, eh? and 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 what format does that take so to speak or what like because we can do that but what's our approach to doing that Mm. what's that meant to feel like what's that meant to look like um is there pros and cons on either Mm. you know like so we we thought we'd just dive into a a deep and meaningful conversation and who are we doing it with today race the reverend dr michael j frost oh yeah uh, sporting a broken foot as well Yes, but that shouldn't affect his. Um, no, his his uh, his uh, <laughs> podcasting abilities uh, were not um, were not impacted by his broken foot. But we're glad that he was with us uh, at any rate. So why don't you enjoy this chat with Michael Frost? Well, Dr. Michael Frost, thank you for joining us back on the podcast. You, again, have been now considered a friend of the show. Oh, tremendous. This is, Achievement um, this is number unlocked. three, is it, Reese? What are you? It's at least number three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are in tying for first place with another one of our wonderful guests by the name of Brian Harris. So you guys can fight it out to see who gets to number four first, but we'll leave that for another day. Uh, today, we are having a bit of a conversation um, around this idea of reframing evangelism. Now, I'm going to start right out of the blocks. Michael, why do we need to reframe evangelism before we even just talk about evangelism? Well, I suppose it's a bit like uh, many things mm. in in the, the language of faith, is that over time, words come to mean certain things embedded within larger frameworks and constructs. Uh, and and what can happen over time is that we come to assume that the definitions and the frameworks that we have are um, are reflective of uh, what was kind of going on in the original stories, in the original texts. Um, and sometimes that's true, and sometimes it's not. And often we're not aware of that until we actually go through the process of examining and reflecting and pulling things apart and and, and challenging them. Uh, and, and one of the other reasons then is you, is you do look at some of the challenges that have emerged in relation to the way in which we framed up some of these things. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and sometimes the fruit of that can tell you that there are some, there's some reframing that needs mm, to go So it's on. almost like our intended purpose at the beginning was fine, but as we went along, we lost the actual framework that we held in the beginning and we've kind of gone off skew a little bit. Yeah, yeah, perhaps. I mean, I, I don't want to be, you know, overly nostalgic about the past that there was some perfect era where we, mm, we used mm. to understand everything perfectly and and then we slowly lost our way. But it is it is the case, I think, that whenever you are talking about something, I mean, when you're talking about the Christian faith, you're talking about the 2,000-year-old faith and the document, you know, the the scriptural text that we're we're reading are in another time and place and language and context, mm. uh, and and sometimes we've we've there's become a chasm between how we actually think about things and how they were how they were mm. framed up at the at the time. And mm. it's helpful to go through a process of um, of examining that and, if necessary, re- reframing. Evangelism mm. is pretty peculiar, at least from my point of view. When I think about it, from I think of my first ever experience of. The word evangelism may have been, I was like 11 or 12 or something, and I was at some kind of youth thing that I was just on the cusp of getting in. I wasn't quite 13, but my brother was going, so I got in as well. And it was some big youth (laughs) rally, and uh, the dude there was some big evangelist and was like, you got to be leading people to the Lord and all that type of stuff. And I found, I was like, what's this word evangelism and what's he talking about leading people to the Lord and feeling pretty Mm. puzzled by the whole thing. And I remember mm. uh, going home with uh, two different color little curved pieces of cardboard where you would show your mate, the person you're evangelizing. And the trick was when you put them next to each other, they looked like one was bigger. And then when you overlaid them, they were actually oh, the I same know you, size. I know what you're talking about. And then yeah. you would, they would yeah. be sufficiently interested to go, oh, this is peculiar. And they'd flip the card over and therein lay John 3.16 or some kind of 
thing. Oh, yeah. oh so the, the card size thing had nothing to do with the message. Was it just a? It was. It was a trap. It was just a curiosity tool. It's a bait and yeah. switch kind of moment. So that, that's 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 <laughs> right, kind right, of right. A, 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 that's a long way of saying evangelism. Hmm. At least my understanding of it from the start was quite peculiar. That's an old school way of just like using a contemporary pop song at a <laughs> church service, isn't yeah, it? Just, exactly. just changing the lyrics exactly. and, then slipping, and then slipping the altar call in at the end. But you know, it's it's. Although sometimes the the, uh, the old pop song has a has a loosely related theme. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I was handing out gospel tracts at primary school, you know. So I was, uh, I was. What was your What was your hit rate? <laughs> I tell you what, I had a friend. Uh, I had a friend called Scott, and I gave him his little tract because you know I was terrified he was going to burn in hell forever because obviously he wasn't a churchy, <laughs> and so um, as a as a little guy that was sad, <laughs> and I took it seriously. And and so I uh, I gave him some gospel tracts and I told him there's a prayer in the bracket that he that he needed to pray, and he's and after some rather aggressive cajoling from a you know rather <laughs> aggressive little ginger kid, uh, he he agreed to pray the prayer in the back. And then the next day, I overheard him swearing in a conversation, and I said, Scott, I thought you agreed to pray the prayer in the back. How can you still be swearing? <laughs> and uh, and look, I think he backslid pretty quickly. To be fair, so um, the, tr- the track didn't quite work. Eh? Well, I got him across the line, but he, he backpedaled uh, back across the I, line. Uh, I, I at this very moment, I am holding a tract in my hand, actually, that is oh, given no. to me um, <laughs> as a tool of evangelism. It is called the Beast, and it is to warn me about the the Beast that's out there. But I, I think like. You know, putting the bait and switch aside, putting mm. the tracks aside, putting maybe certain approaches to evangelism aside. Can we kind of maybe just talk firstly about a bit of a maybe a more healthy definition as to what we're actually talking about when we're talking about evangelism? And then potentially just talk a little bit about the heart behind evangelism. Like, why is this a thing that's evident in church and in faith? Um, but firstly, maybe let's just talk a little bit. Of, I mean, it's in an inherently Christian word. Like, you don't, I don't think I've ever heard anyone use the word evangelism for anything other than faith. And so it's obviously something linked to our faith, but what is the heart? What is the intention to it? So could you maybe take us back a little bit, uh, Michael, to kind of grassroots evangelism? What are we talking about? Like when we're looking at maybe a more biblical definition? Sure. So the so the word for evangelism in the New Testament, which is where we find it, um, it's not actually used that often, but it's a word that's used. That's really a um, well. What happened in the New Testament is sometimes they sort of they used words that we don't find used elsewhere very much. Sometimes they kind of bung bits of words together and to make new words to try and mm. give language to um, what it is that's taking place and uh, how they can make sense of it. But but what it is connected to is, is the word for evangelism is very, very closely connected to the word for for gospel or for good news mm. in, in, in the Greek, right, in the first century Greek language. So the word for gospel is um, euangelion, which um, then when you kind of put a little proclaimy um, word and jam it alongside, then it turns into evangelism. And then that's related to the word evangelist as well. And so they're all really tied around this idea of the good news and then the um, sharing of that good news. Mm. So um, you kind of miss that when you talk about, so in English, gospel and evangelism are like two very, very different sounding words. Yeah, they really are, yeah. But in first century Greek, they're very, very similar. They're very yeah, related. Yeah. You can see one's clearly a, a derivative of or is relating to the other. So um, so that means we have to ask ourselves the question, like, okay, what is meant by the good news? And that's that's obviously one of the big questions that sits at the heart of mm. this conversation, mm. for me at least. Um, because um, sometimes what happens and, and, and what happened in the kind of tracts that I was handing out to Scott at Mayfair Primary School uh, <laughs> was... <laughs> was that the good news had been um, essentially summarized as a, um, you're a sinner, you're going to hell, Jesus died for your sins uh, so that you can be forgiven and not go to hell, but you can go to heaven. And that was the good news of the gospel. The kind of, the problem with, well, there's a few problems with that as a, I'm not saying every element of that is problematic, but in terms of defining the good news of the gospel that way, that's, there's, there's, a, there's a few problems there. So this word, good news, um, is is a word that's used more broadly in the first century. It was used for um, 
particularly good news. So for something like, uh, so examples we have of it being used outside of church context prior to the story of Jesus would be something like uh, an army has won a battle and they come back to their king with the good news. And so the gospel or the good news was we won our, we won our battle. Something like that. It's a proclamation then mm. of that good news would be you want the good news or the bad news? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and so you know, Rome. There, there was a, there was the gospel of Rome when they had their victories and their conquer and they conquered their their foes and so on. Um, so we find that language actually kind of being co opted by Jesus very early on uh, when he starts to then preach the good news. And funnily enough, Jesus preaches the good news quite a long time before he dies. Uh, in fact, right at the start mm. of his ministry, that's how he begins, you know, the good news. Um, and, and so it can be helpful, I think, to, to embed ourselves back um, into the Jesus story and ask ourselves what kinds of things was, was Jesus saying and doing that for him encompassed and embodied and, and represented and testified to and proclaimed and witnessed to what he believed the good news in his mm. way of understanding it. Was and so um, it's very very closely tied for Jesus into the kingdom of God. So, if the good news was the sort of about the kingdom of Rome was the contrast, then then here we had the good news of the kingdom of God. And so, uh, if you you know if you look at the Gospels and the way they tell the story, then Jesus went about um, preaching the gospel or the good news of the kingdom of God. Mm. And uh, and so then we have to ask the question: Well, okay, what's how do we understand his vision of the kingdom mm. of God? So all of these things kind of are connected to one another that I think it's helpful for us to, to, to find ourselves in that conversation so that when we go to talk, okay, well, what are we doing when we then talk about um, sharing that good news? What are we actually, mm. what's, what is that? Um, and so, you know, the, the Gospels tackle that slightly differently from one another. They all bring a different perspective to that conversation. Um, Luke grounds... Uh, Jesus' good news of the gospel um, as as being shaped by Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 61. So um, in Luke, the gospel is essentially summarized by the spirit of the Lord is on me and has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And then that's kind of expanded on by saying, you know, liberation for the oppressed, recovery of sight for the blind, um, and so on, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Uh, so, and the year of the Lord's favor is an old... Um, idea from the, the Torah about how every certain period of time, every 50 years, debts would uh, be cancelled would be f- Jubilee, mm. that's right. So slaves would be freed and debts would be cancelled and land would be returned and, and so on. So um, so when you kind of think about the gospel and the good news in, in that sense, then that's quite a broad, expansive vision of, yeah, yeah. of the kingdom of God and what that looks like. Mm. And so to become evangelists to that mm. story, I mm. think, is certainly much more than, hey, you should pray this prayer, Scott, and stop swearing tomorrow. Um, <laughs> otherwise, you'll burn forever. Mm. It's, mm. Uh, it's, it's instead this, this invitation into a, a different way of actually seeing and being in the world. Mm. Um, and yeah, so I, th- I think maybe that's a helpful place to start. Yeah, we've, I mean, even probably over the last couple of months as a church community, we've actually we've almost gone on a bit of a journey in looking at that kind of good news and exploring mm. some of the kingdom elements of that. And I feel like even part of the conversations we've been having, even Reese and I on the, the podcast, have probably been related to to joining God in his project in bringing his kingdom about. But mm-hmm. that often doesn't just... It seems as though that's not always just about talking about it, but rather embodying it and... Um, People often would prefer the fruit that you have in your life precede what it is you say about your life, you know, because it's hard to trust someone who's, I don't know, not carrying or embodying elements of mm. a, a greater vision for the world and then believe what they say if they, you know, say else, else um, other things. But I, I guess I wanted to then throw back in light of some of that kingdom language, in light of maybe the the connection to the good news the call to evangelize. So let's let's talk about Matthew 28, for example, the Great Commission, which is something we talk a lot about in churches. It's something we talk a lot about our mission and mandate for as Christians. This idea of going into the world and and making disciples. Like 
What what is what does that look like? Because I that that firstly, you know, if we're linking that to the kingdom stuff, it actually is complicated. It's not as simple as just going and brainwashing people or getting people to drink the Kool-Aid or or convincing them or arm wrestling them. That's actually quite a complicated process. Um, what does that look like? What does making disciples look like? What does that kind of evangelism look like? Well, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> and in fact, I think that's a question that church churches, church communities should be wrestling with and and because that's that's kind of that is the question, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, I think you're right in the sense of the well, look, when we when we reduce the gospel down to a kind of a what used to be called back in the day the four spiritual laws, but essentially that was a way of saying this little very tight narrative that I can say my aim is to get you across the line, then really it doesn't matter what I do too much um, because the important thing is that I say the words that convince you to say the words, right? Uh, and that's really the, the big goal here. I say the words that eventually make you want to say the words. And, mm. um, and yet instead there's this call to be disciples and to make disciples, which in fact is not really uh, how can I get, how can I say the right words to get you to say the words, but actually how can we learn what it is to follow this way of Jesus? That's That becomes mm. the call. And so you're right, the early Christians are called followers of the way because that's that's kind of what it looked like to 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 be disciples. And so we take that vision of the kingdom and then we say, okay, well, how do we go into all the world and talk about this this way of um, seeing and believing, and obviously that's intimately connected with the story of Jesus and who he is and what he does, and and so for Paul in particular in the New Testament, you know, sort of after the Jesus story, that shapes his way of sort of talking about the gospel, kind of encapsulated in this idea of of Jesus as Lord and Savior, and so that contrasts, you know, again, it's a that's a borrowed term from Caesar, who's Lord and Savior. And so uh, Paul takes that and says, okay, again, you've got that kingdom vision out there for, of the empire and your Lord and Savior and your gospel. Well, here we're talking about Lord and Savior, Jesus, the gospel of the kingdom. Um, and and so, yeah, the, the challenge is how do we then um, invite people mm. to both see and to participate in a way of being that we believe um, opens us up to a different and a life-giving kind of life. Mm, mm. One that's in relationship with God and also in um, relationship with each other and in with, with with the world around us and creation itself, you know. So, um, so yeah, that, that's a more complex task. It's, mm. it's not a matter of saying, how can I, how can I just get my friend to church so that then the pastor can do an altar call and then they'll go mm. forward and then, my job is done, you know. Um, and and the challenge comes back to us because I've got to then say, okay, well, do I, do I actually, how am I challenged by the story of the kingdom? Mm. And so in some sense, making disciples breaks down some of the lines between the us and the them because I realize in the process of making disciples that I still, do, I still need to be made into a disciple too. Mm. And so rather than being like, I'm the Christian and they're the non-Christian, my aim is to get them to be a Christian, it's actually I'm on this kind of pilgrimage, I'm on this journey to, mm. to learn what it is to be a disciple of, that, of Jesus' way of being in the world and I want to share that and invite other people into that and, mm. and talk about that and wrestle with that and see what it looks like when we put that into practice. And, and that becomes kind of an interesting and I, and I hope kind of exciting way of thinking mm. about it. Yeah, and potentially a more accessible way because if I think about the the go into the, all the earth part of that whole thing, it kind of freaks me out a little bit. It becomes a little, mm. um, oh, that's difficult and that's scary. I might have to go in front of people in, or go do some kind of mission work or something. But the scenario you suggested before of, oh, I'm going to invite my friend to church, hints at mm. actually the making disciples bit maybe is about proximity and Mm. relationship with the person and being um, not just in community but actually bedded down and having having uh playing the long game with someone and again not to get them over over the line but the, like we're both in it together there's kind of like a back and forth and maybe mm. maybe through the relationship and through the exploring the way mm. there's something yeah. there 
as opposed yeah. to the come to church, go down the front, say the prayer, you're saved, great. Mm. And and it's not to even um, belittle some of the unique God encounters that sometimes happen through moments sure. like that, but it's simply to say that there's actually a, maybe a more holistic approach to what we would call evangelism than just a uh, you know, a salvation moment in a church service. And and I think it's interesting, Reese, that you said that because I was thinking the exact same thing as, Michael, you were speaking about the whole like relational element of evangelism. Like you mentioned, and, and I love, I've heard you mention it before, this idea of a way of being in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a beautiful encapsulation of what the kingdom gives us. But I think it's very hard to... Um, invite people into a new way of being in the world unless we first listen to about their way of being in the world. Like I feel like it. what you get when you do that is just enculturation. It's like colonization. It's just like domineering. Like your way of being in the world is in. It's worthless. Here's a new way of being in the world. Sure. And I don't know any um, kind of faith life that's gone well by starting out with force or with fear or with, with those kind of elements. And so, like, I wonder if so much of this, like you said, Reese, is, like, relational and it's proximity. But that means it's actually, it's probably harder. It's a longer game. It's a, it's it's more personal for us. Like, it, it maybe mm. costs a little bit more, but I, I feel like it usually results in a more beautiful, uh, maybe fully flourishing faith than kind of one that's just been born out of fear or or force. Yeah. And I hope I don't come across as kind of wanting to poo-poo on the Billy Grahams of this world because, I mean, the, the number of people that I've spoken to who've, who've mm, said that yeah, they yeah. they had a moment at a Billy Graham crusade or they heard a, a speaker talk or they they just knew in the moment that they had to respond and, and, and say a prayer of sorts or whatever it was. Those moments can be very powerful and symbolic in people's lives. I, I totally get that. Mm. But, but the making disciples bit is, it's more than just, the moment, you know, the moment is potentially mm. a marker in the ground along the way, but, but, but the job is not done. Mm. What you often end up with is, is churches then having to have meetings saying, well, what are we going to do about discipleship? How are we going to disciple our people? Yeah, because yeah, it's yeah. seen as this entirely other thing to, to the sort of mm. getting people saved bit. So um, making disciples and then discipleship are two. It almost we consider them two separate things. Yeah, it's, but they're, it's all yeah, part yeah, of the same right. story. And yeah. so instead of sort of doing these lines in the sand as, as you were that and now you become that, instead there is this this idea of journey um, that I think becomes helpful to us in that sense. And and you know a part of a part of the way of being, right? If I'm to use that phrase, the way of being mm, in the world mm, that Jesus invites us into. Is is in itself one that that um, disrupts the kind of colonizing um, narrative. It, that's what it's supposed to be anyway. And so, yeah. it's you know the kingdom itself is is embodied in these ways of actually hearing and entering into conversation and relationship, rather mm. than a romping. You know, and and the disciples keep missing this a lot of the time. They. They go to a town, and if everyone doesn't agree with what Jesus says, they want to call fire down from heaven to burn everybody up, uh, because they're still <laughs> they're still thinking like, um, yeah, the idea is for our ideas are the, are the good ideas, and their ideas are the bad ones, and we need to convince them of the other thing, rather than this um, a more curious way, perhaps, of of going mm. in the process. And you see with that with someone like Paul when he goes to um, you know famous story at Mars Hill, right, where he goes and he speaks to all of these these guys. And he uses this phrase that I've I heard in church a lot and I use it myself in which this idea of in him we live and move and have our being, mm. you know. But he's quoting a um yeah, an ancient, yeah. you know, <laughs> poet talking about a, a Greek god. Um and so he <laughs> um that was a that's a um for we are his offspring. He's is is a um, from a poem about Zeus. And so he's actually um he is entering into their world and having a conversation with them. Mm, mm. Um, that isn't just I'm here to convince you to become exactly like me. Mm, mm. And, and I don't think that's what evangelism is supposed to look like. Do you ever wonder if um, evangelism, we, like speaking for myself, I don't often go and chat to people who are, non-Christians, either friends or people in my world, and try and really kind of get them on side 
to the way of Christ. You know, I'm not like, hey, so yeah, did you know that I go to church and I, I got this friend, his name's Jesus, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, like that's kind of not how we do things really in the, in, in the 21st century. You're not kind of, well, some, maybe some people do, but I don't. I'm not actively proselytizing to people who are... You're not the one sending tracks to Ryan. No. That's what you're saying. Okay. But Was that I, not you, but, but <laughs> Well, maybe, maybe I should. But, but yet the, 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 the flavor of evangelism sometimes that we're familiar with is, is quite often evident in our church services. So have we kind of just defaulted to using well-tried and tested tools just on people who already have heard the good news? You know, are we just trying to kind of reconvert the converted or, w- or w- whichever way you might want to put it? Yeah, some, I, think, I think one of the things we've done is, is define evangelism in such a way as we then find it terrifying to do and then develop a system that does it for us so that because it's too terrifying to do. So, um, or, or, or weird or uncomfortable or, or whatever yeah, it might yeah. be. So um, because we've defined it in a particular kind of way, which has to be trying to say, you know, evangelism really is about how can I how can I say something that's going to get that person to mm. say the thing, to pray the prayer, to make <laughs> their decision. Uh, well, you know, when I'm sitting next to my colleague at work, um, you know, I remember when I was working for a science company, I was sitting there and, and I could sense the conversation was going in a direction that might provide an opportunity, you know, and I started to like sweat and my heartbeat started <laughs> to race. You know, I'm like, this could be the one moment in their life where they get someone, tell them something about Jesus, you know, and um, and all part of it. And I start like seizing up and just talking in a weird voice because my whole like, <laughs> my whole system is like shutting down out of absolute like, terror <laughs> and also pressure that like this was, this was the moment that I had been praying for you know and then I, mm, I don't know said mm. something incredibly stupid and the, the movement passed um you know we, by turning it into into having to be that we mm. then have to outsource it to and and again this I'm not saying there's anything particularly wrong with the with the Billy Graham or the or the, the altar call or, or whatever and people do have meaningful moments in, in those spaces but it is also a way of kind of getting us out of the thing that we've made um, yeah, yeah. into something that it's not necessarily doesn't have to yeah. be. Yeah. And so if I can sit down and start to talk about um, why I make or or don't or struggle or at least want to make certain like ethical decisions in my life, maybe why I don't want to cut that corner or I, or I do want to treat mm, that person mm. with kindness who everyone else is kind of thinks is a, is a bit of a mm. dick and, and pushes to the edge at work. Um, if I include the person that nobody wants to include, mm. that becomes a way of testifying to the to the way yeah, of the kingdom, really right? Um, if really I pay good. attention to that little child, to use a, a Jesus kind of analogy, when everyone else is trying to do important things with important people, then those become ways in which you're actually starting to testify to a different yeah. kind of vision of life yeah. and a different kind of vision of the world that, that maybe then invites conversation and curiosity, mm. but not from the point of view of, I have to convince this person they're a sinner in the next 30 seconds, otherwise I'm, I'm a failure, you know? Yeah. I think that that point of um, relevancy and relationship are, are really interesting because I think it's also worth just noting that whilst the the kind of Billy Graham approach is is a, a real reality and it, and it has been successful in its own way, I think the world has also changed. Mm. Um, the world that we live in at least, um, maybe – to what you might consider a post-Christian world. I mean, the internet has changed so many things. And so I feel like often people don't want just information shouted at them because they actually have it all at their fingertips if they want. But I think what you're saying, Michael, is so true that people want a compelling vision given to them for the world and for life. And often that's a vision that is not heard about, but it's seen and it's evident. And, um, I think it kind of makes me think a little bit about this idea of, you know, witness. And um, we kind of use that sometimes in church. And for me, when I hear the term witness, I actually kind of think actually more old school than this idea of evangelism, like this idea of witnessing to people. But there's something I really like about the idea of witness because it actually simplifies the process. It is um, no longer about, um, you know, just delivering this certain information. It's actually about allowing your life to testify, like you Mm. said, Michael, to something. I mean, I was, I was thinking the other day. I was talking to Reese about this. I mean, we get really weird about faith, but we do this all the time in everyday life. Like, I love a um, meat box from a 
Turkish store. I don't know if you've had one before, Michael, like a HSP they're known as. There's all sorts of different. The New, New Zealand culture does not have the glory of the HSP. They don't have Meatbox. I don't oh, think we have Reece. an HSP Turkish Meatbox going on. No. You don't? Don't think so. Oh, Reese, do you want to describe it for Michael? Just, Look, just, I, I, just paint a picture. It's like a, a takeaway box of uh, the meat you would find in a kebab and oh. uh, fried chips. Yeah, so it's, it's meat. It's meat loaded on fried chips. Now, I I quite enjoy myself a meat box, but and and I have discovered the greatest meat box in the world, and I would recommend it to you if you're ever over here in uh, Perth. I'm going to give them a free plug: Turkish Oven in Vic Park. They are <laughs> the, probably the greatest the greatest meat box I've ever discovered. Now, I've discovered something amazing. It has changed my life for the better. I go there a lot. It's given me a more compelling vision of life. Now, here's the thing: I was thinking about that. When someone talks, like, I'm happy to evangelize HSP, but I don't do it in a weird way. I don't just go up to randoms and go, have you ever had a HSP from <laughs> Turkish Oven? Do you know the HSP of Turkish Oven? <laughs> you know, your personal, your, your personal uh, meat box of choice. Um, but but when someone mentions the fact that they're feeling like a, going to get a kebab, I'll make mention of Turkish Oven. If someone mentions that they like a meatbox, I'll make mention of it. But I, like you do so in normal relationship, in normal relevant conversation, in a way that's not like you're a Fruit Loop just screaming about random things. And so, like I think this idea of witness is something that we we do all the time in regular life. But for whatever reason, when it comes to faith, we kind of get I don't know, like a bit spooked about it, or a bit weird about it, or we we approach it in a completely different way. And we were talking also, I mean, I'm not sure if this might be an imperfect analogy, but about the the term of, you know, the notion of being a credible witness. You know, if you're in a courtroom, you know, you, can, you the, the aim is to be a credible witness if you're called to the witness stand to, to give an account mm. of what you've seen and what you've experienced. And yes, it's your take on a certain situation, but you can be found to be credible or or not credible and... And the aim would be mm. to be a credible witness and to not be not a strange, unreliable character, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think that that plays into the that idea of really, I feel like so often it's important that our the fruit of our lives almost precedes what comes out of our mouths because I think what can often happen is people want to paint a compelling vision for God's plan for the world and yet they show up to work late every single day and they're a terrible employee. They don't care about, um, their kids and you know like I feel like that that's that's maybe not a credible witness because what why would people actually listen to this compelling vision for the world if it's actually not changing their life in the slightest way um I don't know Michael if you have thoughts about like how do we on a on a on the ground level like how do we do this better is it just living more open and authentic lives and being more honest about what we've experienced in Christ or like I mean, do you have your your top ten tips for <laughs> evangelism? Uh, look, uh, uh, yeah, I don't want to talk as if I'm an expert on um, just roving around. Uh, yeah, when, when, when was the last just time you led someone to the Lord, Michael? People to Christ. <laughs> um, and again, I probably want to. Um, although I know the distinctions are still important to some, I want to break down some of the distinctions that say uh, because even when I think about the good news and and like an evangelist who mm. right who who is one who shares that good news, I actually still need to hear that good news because yeah, my yeah. way of seeing the world still needs to be changed and yeah. and I still need to be invited into a better vision of reality. So you're not uh, just done with it after one hearing. <laughs> no, that's right. Um, and so and so I'm still a recipient of it um, mm. as and a participator in it, hopefully, as well as one who would be open to sharing that. Um, you know, it's funny, I was, I was thinking about a workplace I was in where there were a lot of Christian people and then some people who were not Christian uh, who um, who kind of worked for the same organisation but in a different department. And um, and everybody in the everybody in the organisation was trying to convert this particular one person who <laughs> seemed that she had obviously had a target on her because she was an atheist. Their project. And, um, and everyone was taking her on as a project and praying for her at the prayer meetings and, you know, and then... And, and yet, and she was, you know quite hostile to it. And yet um, we would always just end up having these conversations about spirituality and about life and about what I believed and about what she believed. Um, because I didn't really, I wasn't trying to convert her. I was just trying to 
talk about my life because I like a meat box, you know. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> is that the name of this episode? Jesus is a meat box. Jesus um, is a meat box. <laughs> and and she said, she says Monday. She said. Everyone else is always trying to talk to me about these things, and you never seem to be trying to talk to me about these things. But we always end up talking about these things. Um, and I thought that was kind of like a really well, interesting comment. Yeah. And it wasn't necessarily about how amazing I was at talking about those things, as much as it was that I that I wasn't kind of coming into that conversation trying to twist her arm into anything. I was just kind of talking about my life and was open about it and the kinds of things that I was thinking about and um, and. Actually, what you find when you strip away some of the weirdo language is that the kinds of things that we're wrestling with as Christians and thinking about and reflecting on and negotiating in our lives are the kinds of things that everybody is thinking about and wrestling yeah, with totally. and talking about and trying to and trying to figure out. Uh, and even if you know we've got a, a God com, um, portion of that conversation going on for us in a particular kind of way, um, people are still people are curious about meaning. They're curious about. Mm. Um, whether their lives really mean something or not. They're curious about whether relationships really do matter or not. They're, they're actually curious about all sorts of things. If you're, if you're able, and, and what you see with Jesus and when he talked to people is that he wasn't, he wasn't sealing the deal, right? In fact, half the time he, he, he talked in, in ways that were curiosity invoking, but not particularly clear. Uh, and he didn't, he didn't sort of yeah. say, now before you go, I must summarize this and a few key points for you to take away so that you can think about it and come back tomorrow and tell me, you know, if you're going to mm. now follow me or not. Um, he said some mysterious things, some things he said were confusing, some he said were, were, were very, very challenging to those with power. Um, you know, he, he said all sorts of things. Often people walked away going, oh, that's, that's a bit odd, that's a bit weird. Sometimes he said, no, don't follow me. Um, you know, so don't he tell anyone really, about me. He, yeah, yeah, that's right. Don't tell anyone about me. So he really he didn't have a, a great evangelism hit rate or, or a very, very good formula that he worked from. That's true, actually. Um, yeah, but what well. he did do was, was um, you know, open up conversations around what really matters, about meaning, about life, about power, about the way that power really damages relationship and causes people to suffer. And, you know, he, he, he spoke about all of these kinds of things that people are wrestling yeah. with in their real lives. Yeah. So I think that, in a sense, is the way that I, I start to think about it. I, I think a lot about the word meaning, actually, because I think um, in this kind of post-Christian world, so to, to double back around to one of the other things that you said, I think perhaps one of the reasons some of us find it hard now to talk about our faith is because we are in a world in which Christianity um, often rightly, sometimes unfairly, but often fairly, is um, is put together or understood as being complicit with or sometimes even the direct cause of real harm and suffering for people. In yeah, Now, yeah. I don't want to say that the church is always been, you know, I, I don't buy into the narrative that the church, everything the church has done has always been terrible and awful and because Christianity is mm. the worst and and we should burn it down and dumpster fire. Um, History is always a mixed bag, right? But we do have to be honest and upfront about the ways in which the church has been yeah. historically complicit yeah. and continues to be complicit in, in some very, very unhealthy, unhelpful, directly harmful way, you know, th things mm. in the world. And that means that Perhaps in the Billy Graham era, you had a general vibe in the West that was like, oh, yeah, look, even if I don't really sort of go to church and stuff, I, I do kind of believe roughly in the Christian God probably and Jesus seems good. And then you go to a Billy Graham, Billy Graham meeting and he fires up about it and you're like, oh, gosh, yeah, actually, now that you say that, yeah, I better get myself right. Whereas now we live in a, in a, in a world where people do not have that base assumption. People don't sit there with the underlying idea that, mm. yeah, God is real and Jesus was probably the, the centre of it and, and it was, and, and Christianity is what has made the West great. You know, now the conversations happening 21st century are, are very, very, very different. And that, um, that mm. I think is a, is a good challenge actually yeah. to force us to reframe evangelism and yeah. to say we have to think about this differently. We have to think mm. about what is compelling about the gospel differently. Yeah. Um, and so I think mm. that's a I think it's a healthy challenge and a needed challenge to to the mm. church. Yeah, potentially kind of uh, some major work to be done because I mean there are just like probably hundreds of organisations and groups that would maybe maybe missionary kind of type groups that are based around 
some of the assumptions that we've talked about, you know, like mm. kind of sending the young people off to the nations to, you know, do their time in, in some far-flung land to um, stay in a mud hut f- for two weeks and mm-hmm. dig a well and then come back, come back, you know, like I can imagine re-evaluating what mission looks like for an organisation that's been around for maybe 50, 60, 70 years mm. Mm. could be potentially fraught with, yeah. you know, it's yeah. great difficulty. It's- it's it's a yeah it's hard to do but but necessary work you know I mean just in the news mm. in the last week story in Canada of a you know uh, I think two hundred and fourteen or two hundred and something you know um, graves of of indigenous children found on the site of an old Catholic school um, which was is indicative of of what had happened in that you know in in Canada at that time which is these Christian schools were set up indigenous children were taken out of their homes and, and put into these Christian schools to learn the ways of of the gospel mm. slash whiteness you know um and and a lot of them died and and the ones who didn't die many of them were robbed of their language and their culture and their families mm. and um and so when that's what people think of when you say evangelism and mission then we've got some work to do, right? Uh, mm. And and that that is the big challenge to us to then go back and go say, okay, yep. well, does our gos- is our gospel good news to the poor? Is our gospel liberation for the oppressed? Yep. Is you know is is our gospel the year of jubilee where debts are cancelled and slaves are set free and people are given back what mm. you know what they've lost? Is that what the gospel looks like? Um, yep. And if not, then then let's then let's do our work. Mm. I feel like it makes me think a little bit of, um, you know, we often talk in church, I think it's in First Peter where it says, you know, always be prepared uh, to give an answer for the hope in which you have. And, and often for, for that, it's, it's a bit of tokenistic. Um, always be ready to invite someone along to church as opposed to maybe an invitation for us to actually know the compelling story of God in the mm. world and that kind of vision for humanity that he has. And, and um, I, I remember sitting in a connect group last year and I was chatting with some of the, the folks in our connect group and I think I was quite interested and I remember asking the question, hey, like, so why is the gospel good news to the person that you work with? And, and to be honest, it, it surprised me that for many people, we didn't know the answer to that question. And mm. I wonder if that's a more important, um, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope in which you have is actually understanding why, why why this is good news for the world. Because those are the powerful conversations mm. that you're actually able to have with someone when you understand um, maybe God's vision for the world, God's story in the world, mm. and, and the story that then we're invited to play a part in. Um, like I wonder if part of the issue is that we ourselves can't even imagine the story or don't grasp a picture of what God's actually wanting to do. And, and like you said, we've maybe simplified it to such a weird point that you know if it's just about them getting saved they're already living a good life and you know we're not really sure how that fits in with everything i don't know yeah you so you're in a you're in a world where people's lives are relatively good potentially mm. now that mm. doesn't really fit with the narrative i you know when i was younger and i was kind of in quite an insulated little bubble i was like oh it's so good to be in the church where our lives are amazing and everybody out there they're so dark and life is just <laughs> their lives are so dark and then you actually go and make friends with people and you realize actually some of them, their lives are not yeah. particularly dark. Some of them, their lives are, are, are fine, thanks. And some, um, some of them are more loving than the people yeah, that you yeah, you yeah. know within a church yeah. too. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you can't you can't sort of boil it down to some of those things. Um, but but there's still the question of you know, you know I think in some sense with, with the loss of with the loss of God uh, in in the modern world or the postmodern world. We're sort of left with either pretty much being a consumer who just kind of goes along with just consuming and playing out the narrative, playing out the script, so to speak, of mm. of of contemporary consumer life, um, and yeah, probably having a relatively pleasant time doing it, even if mm. our, you know. Even if our systemic practices cause a bit of suffering in unseen places, that doesn't matter too much as long as our lives go relatively well for us and we get the house and, and whatever it might be. Um, or we or we attach ourselves with, without a, sort of a religious identity, without a sense of of a connection to a greater story of meaning, 
then then it's kind of politics actually becomes the identity marker for a lot of people. And so I think in some sense the pol- the, the real obsession with political identity in in our current times um, mm. and the and the the conflict that's coming about because of that is partly because um, partly obviously because some people are going nuts uh, but also <laughs> in the world so it seems <laughs> but also uh, can I say that is that allowed uh, and, yeah, and also um, <laughs> and also because I think there there is people are looking actually for something to attach some kind something of meaning and 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 of value and significance to attach themselves mm. to mm. Um, the problem is I think that political ideology by itself is is not a not a healthy grounding for one's identity in the world mm. and so you end up just with with kind of increasing animosity um, mm. so so even if people's lives kind of seem relatively fine I think there's still a really meaningful conversation to be had around what it means to be human in the world around where our lives are going and I think thing, you know some of the crises that are hitting us become opportunities for those quest- for those conversations climate crisis becomes an opportunity for that conversation mm-hmm. current political crisis and geopolitical conflict <laughs> they become opportunities actually for that conversation around where where is this this vision of the world that we're all kind of living out where is this mm-hmm. actually taking us and is that somewhere good and healthy or, or not um, and that is weirdly those are evangelistic kind of conversations I think um, because we are starting to witness, to testify to the good news of of, of the gospel of the kingdom, um, even if we haven't played any very emotional minor chords behind what we said to help them uh, <laughs> make a decision in the moment. I mean, I've, I I play I play the keys, and I can play a I can play some mean altar call music if you want, but um, <laughs> it, it does add good emotional heft, doesn't it? Just a little, it does. Just a little E minor. Just a little imagine, E minor. Uh, imagine a movie without any soundtrack music. No, exactly. Give God a rain dance right now!